I'm Rob Congdon, director of CMI-TV, and welcome to our series that begins with this video, beginning with the intertestamental period of history. That's the time between Malachi and the book of Matthew, uh, sometimes called the 400 silent years, for God brought forth no prophets during that time, no books of the Bible were written during this time, so they call it the silent period. It's really a preparation time for the coming appearance of Jesus Christ on the earth. We believe it's a very important study to have because you need to understand the events that occurred during those 400 years that really set the stage for the Gospels. So please join me now as we begin our study. We're going to begin with actually the book of Malachi because that did set the stage for the four Gospels. Do you remember how you felt the last time you had to say goodbye to someone you loved as they were about to leave and there was going to be a long time of separation? When we lived in Scotland, we had just such a parting as our daughter left for college each August. We stood at the airport fence, watching the plane going farther and farther away until it disappeared from view. In a previous video, we explained how Ezekiel described God's reluctance to leave the temple in Israel just before the coming of the Babylonian captivity. In that video, we saw how God stood three times, according to the scriptures. In the Hebrew, the word stood to mean to pause and really with reluctance to continue on your path. For yes, God has an emotion. He did not want to leave his beloved Israel, but because of their sins, their sins of neglecting the land Sabbath, God would put them into captivity in the land of Babylon for 70 years. Now, as we approach the book of Malachi, we're going to have another such parting by God from Israel. For the book of Malachi records this occasion when God must say, goodbye to Israel. This separation would last 400 years as prophesied in Daniel's 70th week prophecy. God used the prophet Malachi to explain why he would become silent during that time. Now, notice carefully, this was not the end of his plan and purpose of history for Israel, but rather a pause in it. Now Malachi the prophet, his name means messenger of God or my messenger. That's a very appropriate name for this last Old Testament prophet. Historically, we know very little about Malachi, for he merely appears on the scene and is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. Malachi wrote during an unprecedented time in Israel's history, a time when the Jewish people had religious freedom and a great deal of political freedom for over a hundred years. This time began when the Persian king Cyrus decreed in 536 BC that the Jews were free to return to Israel from Babylon 
to rebuild their temple and resume their national life and worship. After a halt in the rebuilding of the temple, Ezra and Haggai the prophet recorded that the temple work resumed in 520 BC and was completed in 516 BC. There are two primary reasons for believing that Malachi wrote around 400 BC. Now, when I use dates, very often I pick an approximate date so that I can remember it easier. For instance, 400 BC. As we study this, we'll see it was probably in 396 that Malachi actually wrote. But there are two clues as to why he wrote at that period of time before the 400 years of silence. The first clue, if you will, is found in Daniel's prophecy of 70 weeks, found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 27. I've taught that in my video on Daniel's 70 weeks, and you'll want to go back and review that video to better understand what I'm going to explain about these periods of time within those 70 weeks. This prophetic clock began in 445 BC when King Artaxerxes decreed that Nehemiah, that's his cupbearer, could return to Israel to rebuild Jerusalem's walls and make the city secure, if you will. And in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, we read, I'm going to begin in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, upon the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the decree by Artaxerxes, unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, three score and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Now in verse 26, after three score and two weeks, that's our next period of time, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people, the prince that shall come, shall destroy the city, the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war of desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's another period of time. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. You should recall that Daniel's prophetic week symbolized a seven-year time period so that all would be fulfilled in 70 times 7, or 490 years. During that time, three significant events are indicated by dividing the 70 weeks into three groups. Daniel's first group was a period of 7 weeks, or 49 years, then followed by 62 weeks, or 434 years, which would be when the Messiah would be cut off or die. And then there would follow a gap of unknown years, which we now call the church age. And the last week, seven years, would be the tribulation. Now you say, where did you come up with the gap? Well, here's how I come up with the gap. If I take 70 times seven, I get 490 years. So if I go from the decree of Artaxerxes to 490 years and look for the return of Christ, he didn't come. 
after we studied, and again in the video you understand that, we realize those years are those that affect the city of Jerusalem and Israel. Well, in the Old Testament, the church age was not shown. It was not revealed. It is a mystery. The church was a mystery. That's a something that was coming that was unknown until God reveals it to us. So we obviously conclude that from the time of Jesus Christ's death until his second coming, there is going to be far more years. There must be a gap of unknown length before the tribulation begins. So we've concluded there are three periods of time with a gap between the second and third event. Now, while both the Messiah's death and the tribulation are indicated in scripture, there is no scriptural explanation for that first period of Daniel's seven weeks or 49 years. A study of Jewish history suggests only one significant event took place 49 years after the start or that decree of Artaxerxes. Therefore, if we take Artaxerxes' decree and calculate 49 years, we come to 396 BC, and that event was when Malachi gave this prophecy which significantly speaks of the coming of the Lord. The second prime reason for believing that Malachi wrote in 396 BC is the chronological order of the writing of the books of Haggai and Zechariah that were written between 520 and 490 BC, about a hundred years before Malachi. Both books focus upon and emphasize the coming of the Messiah. This suggests that Malachi also would be significant from a messianic prophecy standpoint, and it is in chapters 3 and 4. During the time between these prophets and Malachi, Israel changed their focus from the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem to their own personal lives, and they neglected the God who gave them freedom from the Persians and who brought them back to Israel. As we will see in Malachi, this change of focus resulted in the people of giving up on the hope of the Messiah's coming, and they got wrapped up in their own daily lives. They got caught up in their careers, making money, their family, and they started neglecting their worship at the temple. They started neglecting God in their personal lives, and any thought of the Messiah was not something they were looking forward to, actually, because they were busy in their lives. When I attended seminary, it's very interesting as you talk to your fellow students and you say, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? And they would talk about they were going out starting a church or, or becoming a pastor in an existing church. And they both, they would start talking about all the plans they had. And I said, well, what about if the Lord comes back? No, we, we really don't want him to come back. Now, they didn't verbalize that directly but they basically didn't want Christ to come back and interfere with their plans for serving the Lord in their churches. Well, that's how the people of Malachi's day had become too. They really didn't want the Lord to come back and interfere with their busy lives as they were then enjoying it. You know what? Nothing changes. For Peter had to remind the people of his day 
and us in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, where he wrote, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is in this context that God spoke through Malachi before becoming silent for 400 years. Significantly, Malachi calls his message from God a burden and not a vision as Daniel did. In Malachi 1.1 we read, The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, biblically, a burden speaks of a coming judgment upon the Jewish people of Israel when it's used by the prophets in the Old Testament. In contrast, a vision speaks of a coming judgment upon non-Jewish peoples, Gentiles, or the nations of the world. The book of Malachi is divided into two major divisions. The first division speaks of God's judgment for Israel's neglect of him. Apparently, the 400 years of silence itself is part of the judgment upon Israel, and it is the time required by God to prepare Israel and the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. For the second division of Malachi emphasizes the coming of the Messiah. This book exemplifies God's principle of chastisement of his people. For we read in Hebrews 12, verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You see, God wants them and us to know that his love remains even in judgment. Thus in Malachi, verse 2, chapter 1, we read, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Yet I love Jacob. This verse is much more emotional in the Hebrew than it is in our English translation. It gives the idea that God says emphatically, I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. He loved them in the past. He loves them now, even when judgment has to come, and he will love them in the future when the Messiah comes. Through much of Malachi, God uses his covenant name when he speaks to them of his love. For his covenant name, that's the unique name God gave to Moses that would be used between Moses and Israel and the people of Israel and God. It's a personal term. You see, the Lord speaks of a relationship. It's not like a king who's a governor over you. Lord is a personal name. It's a special name between we who know the Lord and our Lord. So we call him Lord. We get to use it. It speaks of his love for us. And so too in the Old Testament, it speaks of God's covenant or promises to Israel and emphasizes that his covenant between them is an unconditional covenant. He won't change. 
even though he has to chasten them, that isn't going to end his relationship with them because the love continues on always. I've illustrated this way. <laughs> Have any of you had a dog? You know, sometimes a dog can just be a dog. He can do things I'm not even going to talk about because they make me sick. And yet, if you love your dog, you keep on loving him despite being that very doggy thing that he may have done. That's unconditional love. So should that also be between us and our spouses and our children. It is unconditional despite what they do. Now, we may have to chastise them, of course. But our love continues no matter what. That's what God is trying to picture here. Over in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, God promised Israel. He said, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. Loving kindness. That speaks of a constant abiding favor, a kindness that doesn't end, and a faithfulness coming from God. Since a significant part of that covenant includes the coming Messiah and his kingdom upon earth, God wants them to remember that the promise is still valid despite the coming 400 years that represent a chastisement by God. Thus, after the judgment of chapter 1 and 2 that God speaks of, he then speaks in chapters 3 and 4 of the coming Messiah. In these first three chapters, God states seven prime accusations against the Jewish people of Malachi's day. Now, I've put a chart on the screen for you to see. We can see what God has declared, what the people reply, and I added in the name of God, which will be more significant when we look further in Malachi. Thus, in chapter 1, verse 2, God says, I have loved you. And the people reply, wherein hast thou loved us? And it was the Lord of hosts speaking to them because he is speaking of a judgment coming to them because of that. In verse 6, where is my honor? Have we despised you? Asked the people. In verses 7 and 8, God says, you have offered defiled food. And then they say, in what way have we defiled the food, you, the food? And in verse 17, how sad. He says, you have wearied me. You see, there's God's emotion again. And the people say, in what way have we wearied you? In verse 7, God gets specific. You've gone away from ordinances that I've given you. And they say, where and shall we return? In other words, what do you mean return? We haven't gone away from them. Verse 8, God says, you have robbed me. And they say, in what way? And then saddest of all, verse 13, your words are against me, says God. And they say, oh, what have we spoken? And God ends using the term Lord, meaning he still cares for them. 
Here's some observations on the first two and a half chapters of Malachi, where I specifically go into these accusations and the people's response. Now, you can divide it into many more. The list I gave you came from G. Campbell Morgan, a writer that I found have found very good in his observations. Uh, and you'll want to really read the passage more in depth because we're not going to cover that uh, because the real importance is the next two chapters. So I urge you to study that yourself and see all the accusations, noticing God's emotions as he's speaking, but also noticing the coldness, the hardness of the people. So here's some observations based on those accusations. Judah never recognized the correctness of God's charges. Notice again God's emotions in his interactions. Notice the people are callous, hard, and insensitive to their sin. Their chief sin was a form of godliness that hurts God's heart. And that form, I believe, is really the final and greatest sin. It is dealt with in chapters 3 and 4. It was that they had lost sight of God's promised Messiah's coming to his earthly kingdom. So please join me in part two of this video, where we're going to study in depth chapters three and four and the second coming of the Messiah. I believe you will see the significance of Malachi's writing as it lays out about the coming of the Lord and then God remains silent for 400 years as the nation of Israel has to begin to prepare to learn to see why they need the Messiah. During those 400 years, several things are going to change in Israel. The position of high priest has gone from being a true high priest to merely a political appointee of Rome. The Pharisees, the Sadducees will come into power in the land of Israel. The Sanhedrin will form and will be seen in its effects throughout the Gospels. And significantly, and always with joy, God has a remnant of people who continue to look for the Lord's coming. And we'll see how they shine as we enter into the Gospels and we see they get to see the coming Messiah. I am sure you're going to want to better understand this period of history, how Malachi really introduces it as a prelude, if you will, and then how Matthew will present the King has come, Jesus Christ has come to the earth, and he will offer the kingdom to Israel. Please join me then. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily. We'll either see you here or in the air.